Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 96 of the Podium Panel Podcast. Last week was a little slower, but Pat managed to find a third case for us to cover, and we'll do that later on in this uh, podcast. Our first case today is Quarez versus Chicago Transit Authority, and uh, we'll talk about duties uh, and legal duties to act in that case. The second case today is Schickless versus Country Life Insurance Company, an interesting case involving rest judicata issues and a life insurance policy. And our third case today is Bain versus Airroom LLC, an interesting case involving arbitration provisions. Turning to our first case today, Quiraz, the general rule is that the mere fact that an actor realizes or should realize that his action is necessary for the aid of another while perhaps imposing a moral duty to act does not in itself impose a legal duty to act. Citing from Rhodes versus Illinois Central Gulf Railroad, 172 Ill Second, 216 from 1996. That was the essence of the closing of the rebuttal argument by counsel for appellant last week before the Illinois Supreme Court in this case. In this case, the son of the plaintiffs was killed in a CTA tunnel when he was struck by a train. The plaintiffs can see that the decedent was a trespasser, but alleged that he was seen by two passing trains before being struck. The trial court dismissed the plaintiff's complaint and the appellate court reversed despite finding that the allegations were incredulous or far-fetched. The CIA, CTAs, not CIA. Those, C- that, that's a quote. That, that's yeah. a quote from the, uh, from yeah, the appellate right. court opinion. Right. <laughs> yeah, the incredulous or far-fetched. Uh, yeah. The CTA's central point is that if the plaintiff prevails, the duty owed to a trespasser with regard to a moving train which the court has found to be an open and obvious danger as a matter of law, will be greater than the duty owed an invitee, and that outcome is just ridiculous. In reversing the trial court, the appellate court did not even consider the open and obvious doctrine, instead relying on the discovered trespasser rule. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And so Dan mentioned the uh, closing of the oral argument, and there, the justices were rather inert during the argument of the appellant, uh, the CTA, were extraordinarily not inert during the (laughs) appellee's oral argument. And then this is how the rebuttal argument began for counsel for the the CTA. So I'm going to cue this up and you can hear how this went. CTA have a duty to someone who is standing on the tracks as a trespasser, waving their arms right in front of the, the train conductor. Does the CTA have a duty of some in, sort? In, in terms of our internal procedures and moral duty, of course, but in terms of the legal duty, legal duty is a term of art which presupposes a right of recovery and of individual, and that can be burdens on our entity. No, 
at the section 337 is an open, open and obvious risk that we would know, we would all know legal duty. I wanted to address in terms of section 336 of the restatement. First of all, the Kotiki case, um, the, uh, again, as, as I mentioned, the circumstances there were, were that uh, it was broad daylight and the company, the train company knew that people were using the bridge as a shortcut to a local park. And the train operator, you know, moving very, backing up very slowly, shouted, get out of the way. And, um, and then still seeing that people are there, he proceeded to, you know, go against them. So there, again, people are in a place where on the facts of that case, it was they were reasonably expected to be using that property as a shortcut to a local park. And which goes to my you know, kind of secondary argument that here there is not even sufficient allegations that we discovered this person. Because in that case, you know, obviously the train operator shouted, get out of the way. Um, I don't believe that we're talking here mostly about intentional tort. It's not negligence, almost like intentional tort. And in cases involving intentional torts, courts always require more precise factual allegations. So I think on the facts of this case, and it's not even enough to say he saw it and why. It's as reasonable as alleged that they didn't see it as, you know, he did. But in, in any event, Section 336 does not resolve the conflict with the duties to invitees versus duties to trespassers, because Section 343A governing invitees indisputably applies to both dangerous activities and conditions, while Section 336 regarding trespassers applies to you know activities. So, so you get the flavor of. Where, of where this went and some of the examples that were being used. So council mentioned the, uh, this, case, this Katoski case where the, the trainman yells at the people to get off of the tracks, but it was an area where they knew they were going to be. This is a situation for some reason that no one knows. The, the plaintiff's decedent, Mr. Ricardo Quiroz, is in the tunnel in between stations at the, uh, of the CTA red line. And the allegation is, is that he is seen by two passing trains. Then he somersaults into the, into the, he's in a, like an alcove and he somersaults into uh, the tracks. And then he, his hand gets on the tracks. And then we have video of him being tangled up in the train and he's found dead thereafter. It's horrible. horrible. Uh, but the idea is that, okay, what duty do you owe this person who plainly had no business being there? Um, and counsel uh, referenced the, uh, sections 336, which hasn't been uh, adopted by the court, except in Ditka. It's been, dit listen to me, Ditka. Uh, Dicta. Uh, <laughs> I am in Chicago. Uh, and, but These and those. Three, three, yeah, 337 has been adopted and 343 have been adopted which deal with uh, open and obvious conditions. Uh, and, and 337, all the, I mean, doesn't say open and obvious, but it might as well. Uh, a condition that is known or reasonably should be known to be dangerous. Um, and the court has held in the Choate case, which dealt with trespassing children, 
that even a small child knows that a moving train is an open and obvious condition that you don't owe a duty to. And so the question is here, do they, was he discovered? And the point that counsel for the Apple, the appellee, the plaintiff below kept making is he was, this wasn't foreseeable. This was foreseen. He was found and they did nothing. The question is what were they to do? Uh, and there, there really isn't a good answer is because, so you get a series of questions and they came from a variety of sources. So one of them was from chief justice Burke, who said, well, what about the passengers on the train? You know, if you have to stop this train, emergency stop this train, you put those people at the, at risk. And as counsel for the CTA said, we owe those people the highest duty of care, not an ordinary duty of care, not a reason, the highest duty of care. They're on our train. And understand, there's this, this is a culmination of a series of cases. So you had a case, uh, we talked about the prior case, where the guy steps on to the right-of-way, right in front of the train. He's seen, but right. immediately is seen, and he's hit. And the court said no. Uh, this is the appellate court, said no. no. no, He's a trespasser. He's seen. It's no good. It's an open and obvious condition. You can't walk in front of a train. Well, what's the difference here? Counsel for the appellee, tried to make this distinction. Well, if he had been standing on the tracks as opposed to he somersaulted out, there's like, why does that matter? Which is where Justice Tice's question comes, which is he's standing on the tracks waving and, and they're like, and she's like, no, you don't owe them a duty, a legal duty. It makes this distinction right. the court made between, that they had quoted, between a moral duty and a legal duty. Um, you know, a duty is a, as a, as a reasonable human you know, as a good human, sure. But do you have to put everybody else at risk? Um, perhaps not. And then this is this argument is actually the title of my column for the week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. And I quote from what Justice Michael Burke, so this is not Chief Justice Ann Burke, this is Justice Michael Burke, just to make things confusing, right. who asked a question about, you know, you keep talking, counsel for appellee, you're saying you don't have any facts, you don't have any facts. This is duty. It's a question of, of law. Why are we mixing up facts and law? And, you know, he cited to an opinion of his from 2015, Stearns versus Ridge Ambulance, where he reversed uh, appellate court or he reversed the trial court's grant of summary judgment in a situation where a person had not been restrained in an ambulance being transferred from a off-site dialysis facility back to the nursing home, not an ambulance, but a, a transport, a medical transport van wasn't properly uh, um, restrained. And then she falls as a result of uh, trying to reach for a book or something and, and she dies. Um, and so the question is, is, you know, this question of mixed fact and law, but it's really kind of hard to escape when you've got this, these four factors that include foreseeability. And so not giving away too much of the column, but the idea is, is that as long as foreseeability is in the mix, you're going to have facts. And the point that the plaintiff has made is, well, he was seen. It's a really difficult case for both sides, um, particularly at this stage of the proceedings. But I just don't understand how you could owe a greater duty to a trespasser than to an invitee. No. Uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense, uh, discovered or otherwise when you're dealing with an open and obvious condition, which the train as a matter of law, a moving train as a matter of law has to be, uh, is there another more open and obvious condition than a moving train? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, if we're going to have the open and obvious rule, it's a train, a moving it's one. A, 
It's a moving train, right? A anything else to add to this, Dan? No, I don't think so. I, you know, again, the, the tragic facts and circumstances, who knows what, what in the hell he was doing. Um, but, you know, again, I agree with you. I, I don't see how you have a higher duty to a trespasser than uh, an invitee. And, and so um, hard, and hard to And then also it. considering the duty that's owed to the passengers. Right, right. And putting them at risk potentially. Well, especially if you're going to put on the emergency brakes, that means all the standing people are going to get thrown. Thrown, They could suffer death and, and injuries, and who knows what, what can happen there. So, yeah, right. it's a yeah, ter terrible thing, but, you know. It, it's, a, it's a bit crass, but, you know, I, I've, I, I said it on LinkedIn, is that my view generally is, is that when you go on the tracks, whatever happens next is on you. It's, I mean, I, I, don't, don't go there. Just, just stay away. <laughs> stay on the platform. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and you it's, know, and it's it, it's tragic too for the conductors. I, I had a case mm -hmm. at the beginning of my career when I was at, at Lord Bissell, uh, that was a degloved case, and the and the guy was playing chicken with the train, and that you know that guy in the front, he saw the guy, the guy was running, and again you come around the bend, the guy was trying to outrun the the train, got pinched between the fence and the train, and you know any time that happens, uh, we, we so, somebody in my neighborhood on the Metro jumped in front of the train years ago. And that young lady that was uh, a neighbor of mine, she's never been on the train again. It's just, it, it really is. It's tragic for all involved. And so again, it's uh, like you said, if there's any open and obvious danger and things that, that are not to be, you know, trespassed on it's train tracks with trains that are moving at high speeds and weigh tons and tons and tons. Exactly. With, with P with, the, with people on them, with in people the on the seat, with Kate in the case of the CTA. Right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Chickless versus Country Life Insurance Company. Welcome back to episode 96 of the Podium and Panel podcast and our second segment talking about Chickless. That's T-S-C-H-L-I-S for those scoring at home. How powerful is race judicata? That is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court decides Chickless versus Country Life Insurance Company. Again, uh, the plaintiff, a widow, filed suit against the defendant insurer claiming death benefits of $700,000 following the death of her husband. In the first case, the Appellate Court reversed the trial court in a matter of first impression held that, quote, due proof, end quote, of death had to be provided by the insured and that because she did not do that, coverage was not triggered. This was despite the fact that the insurer had the death certificate from other sources. Following the first appellate court judgment, the insured filed a redacted version or provided a redacted version of the death certificate, but the insurer neither paid the death benefits nor did it refund the premiums that would be due in the event of suicide by the insured, which had occurred within two years of the inception of the policy. That's a typical provision in a life insurance policy of this kind. The insured filed suit again, and the trial court, applying race judicata, dismissed the case. The insured appealed again, arguing several exceptions to race judicata, including condition precedent. Throughout the argument, they said precedent. I've told this story. I won't tell it again. It's condition precedent and fundamental fairness as the other basis, as the insurer neither paid the death benefit nor returned the premiums. 
the justices seemed skeptical that race judicata excused the insurer's performance entirely. Dan, tell us about the oral argument and maybe start off by informing the the the, the lawyers, maybe, but certainly the non-lawyers. What's race judicata? Race judicata says when something's been tried, the public policy and and resolved that public policy is is that you uh, don't get to try it again. It's it's uh, it's it's claim preclusion. It's claim, done. Claim preclusion, and the um, the the appellant lawyer uh, David Clavat in this case, uh, a neighbor of mine and someone I know very well. He he started off by talking about uh, it's a very harsh remedy, right? Not not always a favored uh, race judicata. Um, you know, it's it, it and the policies of race judicata. Uh, they would. Uh, it turns out that you'd rather give the wrong party judgment than go to trial and sort out again or relitigate the facts uh, for a claim that's already been decided. Um, this was a, a, an interesting case in many ways including the fact that it was Justice Hyman and Justice Walker and Justice Paczynski, and at least Walker and Hyman seemed to have, Hyman for sure, in 2018 on the, the initial uh, time up to the to the appellate court. He wrote the, the it's opinion. It's the same panel. And it's the same, the same panel. panel. And so, panel. so in 2018, just to give you some uh, flavor uh, of that case, uh, the, the court started uh, Michael uh, Justice Hyman's opinion, read, quote, on December 17, 2011, plaintiff Catherine Chickless reported to the Park Ridge police that her husband, John, a real estate developer, had gone missing. Both the police and John's family searched for him with the help of a private investigator to no avail. Two months later, John's body was found in the woods near the Chickless home. The medical examiner determined that John had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He had a life insurance policy. Uh, it was bought within two years uh uh, of the date of his suicide, and she, uh, Catherine, sued Country Life for breach of contract because it did not pay the death benefit. Uh, the court uh, looked at uh, the trial court in that initial checklist one, as it was referred to in the oral arguments, and found that the trial court erred in finding for Catherine. Uh, the, the, as Pat said, the policy required, quote, due proof, end quote, of John's death, which was never provided. Um, and it's not clear from the language, but it sounds like from the oral arguments that the policy uh, required due proof. There was some questions, though, by Paczynski and others on this panel of, of that the only thing that the uh, initial appellate court decided was that due proof meant that the insured had to provide the death certificate. As Pat mentioned, um, the uh, uh, widow had at first refused to provide it, and then when she did provide it, it was redacted. Um, there was good arguments. I got 10 bucks that says the part that was redacted was, was, was the manner of death, which was suicide. Right. right. And, and, and the appellate, uh, appellant in this case, uh, talked about the fact that, uh, medical examiners, uh, uh, causes of death, including suicide are not admissible, uh, as evidence. And so an inquest, we've talked about this an before. Inquest. An inquest is not, is not admissible. We talked about this in the case where the young man fell in the scaffolding situation and you can't use the inquest. Same thing right. with the death certificate. That was admissible for that purpose. Same thing, although admissible for purposes of court versus the, the process of life insurance, maybe maybe two different things that, you know, there's the nice thing. We're gonna find there. out. Right, we're gonna find out. Um, this is a case of 
uh, and Pat and I have talked about this on this podcast. Uh, we've written about it, I think both of us probably. Uh, you have to be careful uh, when you advocate of, of going potentially too far in your arguments and not being so strident and not having any kind of give. And what I mean by that is the appellee in this case um, was asked point blank by Justices Hyman and Walker and even Paczynski, um, the, the, she, she made some arguments about, well, uh, we don't even owe the premium back in this policy because they've never, the condition precedent, as Pat said, never took place and there's no material facts here. And, and she said that because they'd never provided the information that was uh, required of due proof of, proof of death, that neither the $700,000 policy limits or the premium, which I believe was 20-something thousand, uh, was returnable. And the, uh, the justices seemed just taken aback by that. They kept pressing. And Justice Hyman, as, as we've talked about, is very clear in what he's thinking and asking. He said, really, that you, 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 it's, been, it's been years, and you, 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 uh, checklist one was 2018. Have you returned the premium? And that she said, no, we don't owe the premium back. And uh, again, I, th I think the, the justices kind of showed their, their color. Um, the, um, the interesting thing, I think towards the end of the argument, Pat mentioned the two uh, uh, bases that uh, the appellant argued, condition precedent and, um, and, and another reason, the exceptions to race judicata. And I think that was really powerful because when, again, when the appellee stood up, uh, Justice Walker and Justice Hyman both uh, referred to those two uh, provisions, and the appellee started going down the path that the there was no condition precedent that took place, there was nothing that that uh, uh, at issue here, uh, and again, uh, uh, a very difficult uh, argument. I think that, the, that this one's going to get reversed. Is you know. I'll, I'll proceed my our prediction sure to go wrong um, so you know again the um, um, the appellee argued that it was the same cause of action same operative facts to, there's there's no new fact here um, the um, uh, you know in part part again of the the questions I think from Justice Hyman was that prior to Chickless one and that decision it was unclear what due proof meant. As Pat said, uh, the the country did, in fact, have a death certificate and, and had the information in their possession. Um, and so um, the appellee was arguing, well, uh, they should have known that due proof had to be provided by them. They refused. They, they uh, you know, obstructed and, and refused to cooperate uh, in providing the uh, uh, death certificate uh, and that... Uh, as a result, um, you know, they, they forfeited any rights they had under the policy, including return of premiums. Um, and as we've talked about in this show, Pat, you know, when I, when I was uh, a paralegal at, at CNA, my last year of law school, uh, one of the things that we often uh, dealt with was life insurance uh, policies, accidental death policies. And the one thing we were taught is on these types of transactions, if there was going to be some issue, right, of, of non-payment and for things like this. Either it was a, a cause that was excluded uh, within the con uh, contest period 
or uh, the premium had come in late or whatever, right? It was to return that premium to uh, the insured, right? And, and, and at least stop that line of argument. And so again, here, um, as, as I read and mentioned from 2018, the, the, this has been going on for over a decade now, 2011, uh, he went missing in early 2012. Uh, he was discovered in the woods. And so uh, for 12 years now, um, and Paczynski, J J Justice Paczynski used the uh, famous Warren Buffett, the float. She said, really, you've had fl the float on this premium for all these years, and, and yet you've done nothing. Um, and so, again, it, it, it's a case that um, has interesting, you know, interesting arguments. And I honestly, if you listen to the oral argument in this case, and you listen to them asking questions of the appellant, it seemed like it was maybe heading in one direction. Uh, that that uh, it was going to go one way, and then uh, like Pat talked about that was that was for show. That was for show because <laughs> the, the, the Pelly had a, a, a very rough time of it in terms of uh, coming back, and and again on rebuttal, I think uh, David kind of shored things up. So interesting case. I don't know if I missed anything, Pat. Well, I want to add something that came to my mind as I was listening to this. It's something that. Uh, case that always used to be cited by a partner I worked with at a former firm, a case called Miller's Mutual Insurance versus House, which is a 1997 Fifth District case that says an insurer owes the undisputed amounts, period. And then you fight over what's left. Right. The guy's dead. You know the guy's dead. Now, maybe you owe the 700000 but you sure owe the premiums. You owe at least the premiums. Right. Pay the premiums. Now, that's what I would have said if I was counsel for appellants, is there's an undisputed amount. They haven't paid it. They're in bad faith, yada, yada. I mean, that's, you know, that's what I would have argued. The response is, and this is ultimately what appellee got to, was, but that's not what you told us last time. Right. The problem here, is a problem that was created by the appellate court's first opinion. And Justice Paczynski seemed very uncomfortable with what they had done. Now, she had voted for it, to be she sure. Did. But she seemed really uncomfortable with that. And, and, and it, this was, and her point was, no one knew what due proof was until we told them. And to which the appellee said, yeah, that's true. But then you told us they hadn't met the condition proceeding to trigger coverage, so we were done. So it can't be both. I mean, it, this decision put them in a horrible trick bag, both of them. Uh, it, the plaintiff was, the, the, you know, the insured was left in a bad spot. The insurer was left in a bad spot. But and she counsel for the appellee said, hey, you guys want, to write, want us to write the check for the premiums. We'll do that tomorrow. Uh, maybe they should have done that uh, a while ago, but I could understand why they read the the uh, first appellate court opinion the way they did to say we don't owe anything because they were they their I mean their view was is that this woman was playing games she was giving them a redacted death certificate she was trying to hide you know this kind of a thing. I mean um, she, she she was, but again, you know the rule is you can't keep both. 
You can't get both. That was Justice Walker's point. Right. You don't get to keep both. Right. You can't have both. You get one or the other. You right. get, Are you telling me, I think you said it, are you telling me that our opinion excuses your performance entirely? We get to rewrite the contract? I don't think that's what we get to do. No. Uh, yeah, he, he wasn't he wasn't buying that. So, I mean, you know, it, this is going to be a reversal. What that reversal ultimately looks like and whether that's a Pyrrhic victory remains to be seen. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But well, that's our that's our uh, prediction, our prediction of our prediction. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with arbitration. Ugh. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 96 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And we're back for the case involving arbitration. In order to be unenforceable, does an arbitration clause have to be both procedurally and substantively unconscionable? Is it unconscionable to foist all fees for arbitration in a construction contract between a consumer and construction company onto the consumer? Is it unconscionable to require the application of construction industry arbitration rules of the AAA instead of the consumer arbitration rules? Can a confidentiality provision of the arbitration clause be applied where the contract then allows for the enforcement of an award which would require filing the award with the court. Does that contradiction require striking the clause, or can the award just be filed under seal? Or does the confidentiality clause even apply once the arbitration is complete? Is the consumer's objection to arbitration an appeal moot when, a week before oral argument, she files for arbitration with the AAA as ordered by the circuit court and is told that AAA will waive the fees but not the arbitrator fees? Those are among the many questions the Illinois Appellate Court First District will address when it decides Bain versus Airroom LLC. The plaintiff contracted with Airroom to remodel her house. The contract was for $210,000. A dispute arose, and in the word of her lawyer, Airroom, quote, stole, end quote, $180,000. She sued Airroom, and the circuit court dismissed, finding that the dispute had to be arbitrated. The plaintiff asserts multiple procedural and substantive defects in the arbitration clause that would preclude its application. Yet, another problem with insisting on arbitration, especially when the clause seems rather one-sided. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this interesting arbitration case. Yeah, so there's a ton here, and and, and that really, we can't really do justice to the case. But uh, as per the usual arrangement, Justice Mikva was extraordinarily active in this oral argument, and she kept coming back to counsel for the appellee saying, hold it. Why are you guys insisting on using the AAA construction rules? These are the rules for the uh, complex cases. This is a $210,000 job. What, what are you, why don't you just use the consumer rules? Yada, yada. Well, I've litigated under these rules, as it turns out. And the, the name of the rules is this. 
construction industry arbitration rules and mediation procedures. I don't think there's any doubt this involves construction. Next one. Including procedures for large, complex construction disputes. And there's a, a group of rules for big construction disputes of the kind that Justice Mikva was describing. So th that's why they chose these rules. Uh, the rules are different than the consumer rules. They're, they, uh, they, they, have a fee they have fees and all kinds of things. And, but one of the points Justice Pierce brought up, he said, hold it now. You, you're complaining about the fees, but you're going to have fees no matter who the arbitrator is. Whether it's under the construction rules or the consumer rules, you're going to have you're going to have rules either way, or fees either way. Um, the really interesting thing is what happened a week before. My dog has some some views on this apparently, so everyone <laughs> take a drink. Um, the The really interesting thing is what happened a week before the arbitration. They filed with the AAA which is bizarre after a year after they were ordered to go to our arbitration, they file. And the question is, does that moot the case? Um, you know, counsel didn't have time to really file a brief on the topic. So he just raised it at our argument and said, you know, I don't understand how this doesn't moot the case. The court wasn't really buying that. No. Um, the court uh, was, you know, they may ask for some more briefing on this topic, but I, I don't understand why counsel did that at this late stage. But apparently they were told that the AAA would waive the fees. Now, that's the filing fees, not the arbitrator's fees, to be sure. And then they claim, you know, because they took all this money, stole was their word, not ours. Uh, they, they stole all this money. She wasn't able to pay moving, you know, the arbitration. She'd get kicked out of arbitration. It's like, I, I, I don't know. The, the procedural... This is a very one-sided arbitration clause, to be sure. It is. Um, but she did initial it. She did agree to it. Um, I It was interesting. It'll be interesting to see what the court has to say about whether both procedural and substantive unconscionability have to be approved. The court seemed a bit skeptical of that. The court, the plaintiff claimed that that case that they were relying upon had been overruled. Appellants, appellee said, no, it hasn't. It's still good law. be interesting to see what they have to say on that. Uh, but but what a mess! What what a mess over not a not a I mean this is a big case but yeah. not a terribly large case and we're fighting this they're fighting this long over where to where to litigate, um, litigating over litigate where to litigate it seems to be kind of uh, unbelievable when the whole purpose of arbitration is to eliminate these kinds of costs. Dan, anything else to add on this one before we move on to our other segments? Now, you know, years ago we went to Arum. They're they're near my house, and uh, our job wasn't big enough. So they're they're a place that you know do, does these kind of high priced, high end uh, Lincolnwood and a lot of other these, these giant places and and re reconfigurings and you know high end work. And so again, um, you know, it's one of those things we've talked about it in various contexts. These arbitration provisions, you know, in nursing homes and other contexts, pad and so. Like you said, she, the, you know, the person initialed it, so it's, uh, but it, but it does seem like a mess, and uh, a lot of time and energy spent on debating, like you said, what forum they're going to be fighting. So I'll be very interested to and, hear. We're going to get something out of it because we're going to learn something out of it, which is why we wanted want to talk about the case, right? Uh, but I, I, you know, these these litigants, I'm not sure what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, COVID bi, much going on this week, Dan. You know, just as more of the same, more more of the same. The Eleventh Circuit and other circuits just keep popping out 
their opinions, uh, well, affirming dismissals for the most part. Yeah, the 11th Circuit uh, issued a Florida opinion on Florida law the other day, then canceled an oral argument, another one that was supposed to be held, issued an opinion, and then one of my partners in Atlanta has got an argument on Georgia law tomorrow. Okay. Um, so we'll see uh, we'll see what how that goes. Um, so uh, it'll be an issue of so – the, that'll if, if they come out in favor of the insurers in Georgia, they, it, the entirety of they will have ruled on the entirety of the, of the 11th Circuit because they've already found in Alabama and Florida. Right. Um, which brings us to the prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Kiro's reversed. Reversed. Uh, Chicklets reversed. Reversed. Uh, Air room affirmed. I think it's affirmed. I think so, too. I think so too. Maybe not on mootness, but what right. other basis? Right. Um, right. And, and then our, go ahead. Uh, no, I think, I, I think that's it on those. I, you know, the, um, you know, I, I, I think, I, I think in the checklist case, uh, as the appellant talked about, there are two introductory legal tenants at issue. And I think they'll, like we talked about reverse based on that. So. I, I think you're probably right that the 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 it'll be interesting to see on what basis they do and how they how they cut that baby up. Yep, and as and as, to... as Justice Walker reminded, as he often does, you know, we can affirm on any basis in the record or any other, you know, any anything. But in they the record. can't reverse on any basis. Right, right. They can affirm. They can't on any reverse basis. on any basis. Right, they can right. Affirm on any basis. Right, right. So I don't know if that gets them where they want to go. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. But. We, we shall see. So that brings us to our prediction. Sure to go wrong. Um, uh, we are, we're one, th- Dan is one thirty eight and a half, twenty one and a half, and seven. And I am one thirty six and a half, twenty three and a half, and seven. Um, and the, uh, so I, I, I lost one this week where we split on nationwide versus state farm. Dan, why don't you tell us about that one? Sure. This this was a case that had to do with uh, the automotive exclusion, um, and uh, uh, Nationwide had argued that the circuit court erred in concluding no duty to defend was triggered because the underlying complaint alleged facts concerning Davis's concrete's negligence that were not encompassed by State's Farm's automotive exclusion, and thus were within or potentially within the policy's coverage. Uh, the court uh, affirmed in part and reversed in part and remand it uh, uh, for rulings consistent with the order. Uh, this was State Farm got whacked. They, they got whacked. They lost on they got a they 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 lost on both pounds. They got hit with a stopple. They got whacked. They, they uh, got, is what is what happened in this they, case. They got whacked for which, sure. Which brings us to Copen yeah. versus FP McAfoo's one we got right we both agreed on. This is the guy that slipped and fell. Poor 92-year-old fella breaks his femur, couldn't figure out where exactly he fell, which was kind of the problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want to see the picture of where he fell, maybe uh, I posted it today uh, on LinkedIn, the picture from the opinion. And that has, may not be where he fell at all, which really creates the problem. And it had the tractors, or at least one tractor is very prominent there that he was allegedly he was admiring. admiring and looking over his shoulder, however he fell, so... Exactly, which brings us to uh, the Seventh Circuit's decision in Legends Creek versus Travelers, uh, which required, which was an affirmance of the requirement that they bring an action within two years, uh, and the gamesmanship 
that uh, the public adjuster engaged in uh, and uh, it, it came back to bite them. Um, so with that, Dan, tell us about uh, the rule of the week, uh, one we dug out sure. um, from a couple weeks ago on LinkedIn. And I'm going to toss it back to you, but the rule of the week comes from a post on a LinkedIn case analysis from Pat, and it has to do with uh, non-parties being able to move in certain jurisdictions uh, for the court to publish an appellate opinion. So why don't you tell us about the, the rule that we uh, dug out, Pat? So I, I posted about an opinion that was unpublished, and someone said, hey, why doesn't someone move to publish it? I went, what are you talking about? Only the parties can move to publish. They said, oh, no. In Washington State and in the Ninth Circuit, non-parties can say can move to publish opinions, which is just like, that'd be a free-for-all right. uh, of, of, of motions to, to publish. Everyone would think that the thing needs to be published. Uh, but okay, it works for them. Uh, I, I've never heard of such a thing, but I'd be interested to hear if there are other states or, or jurisdictions that have that rule. But that's the rule of the Ninth Circuit in Washington State. What I'd like to know is, is was, what, what the percentage of actual, how often the courts say, yeah, well, okay, so, somebody that's not involved at all. <laughs> you know, what's, There's probably some people out there that just constantly motion for it, right, every time. Yeah, we call them gadflies. Gadflies. <laughs> I mean... I, 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 it's amazing. I, I never heard of such a thing, but that's the, that's the rule out there. So think about that one. I, I don't think that's going to come to Illinois anytime soon, but there it is. It's so with that, uh, we'll take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week. Uh, we'll try to, uh, uh, put together another show, a lot of arguments today already on Monday. So we've got, uh, we've got, we'll have a, we'll hopefully have a packed show for, uh, for the weekend. For Dan, this is Pat. Thank you for joining the Podium and Panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel Podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients. <laughs>